analyst and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst. And to remind our listeners of an important note, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own, and not necessarily those of Refinitiv or of our parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group, also known as LSEG. Today, we're covering something very timely, world leaders and their energy policies. Now, Jim, I believe you have something to say about walking on the beaches of Canadian lakes at sunrise with chickens or, or something of the sort. I'll, I'll let you explain. Can't sneak a sunrise past a rooster. A colorful U.S. idiom that implies some things are impossible to do. The subtext of this analogy also exhibits the involuntary, almost maniacal actions of the rooster crowing at an event he is powerless to change. And thus, we speak of leaders and their energy policy. This brings up a few of my favorite things. Idioms, irony, and analogy. This will not be a rant about the current geopolitics or, or even the politics of energy. Today's podcast is more like a boat drifting across the quiet lake. Like a bowling ball wouldn't. Okay. There may be some metaphors and similes as well. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of Canada, like every other leader, has far more to look after than just energy. Even though everything is the responsibility of the leader, inherited or self-induced, leaders depend greatly on advisors, especially in highly nuanced areas like energy. As such, I will also mention those that have the ear of the leader. In Canada, these two are Jonathan Wilkinson, the Minister of Natural Resources, and Stephen Jobol, the Minister of Environment. These two appear to be on a similar page, but similar like an artist and an art critic. Mr. Wilkinson was CEO of a gas separation company that was acquired and then became CEO of a water treatment company that specializes in purifying water from mines. Mr. Jobol is a former Greenpeace campaign director, famous for climbing the CN Tower in protest, only to be rescued by the very people he was protesting against. Why is this important? This dichotomy is judiciously reflected in the conflicted Canadian energy policy. The recent 2030 Environmental Reduction Plan is front and center. This report is an aggregation and acceleration of previous Canadian emissions plans. The basis of the plan is adding meat to the bones of a mathematical model for getting Canada down to net zero emissions by 2050. This plan seeks to get Canadian emissions down from the 2005 level of 739 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent to 443 million metric tons by 2030. Clear as mud, right? Canadian energy policy is being driven by an emissions model, not a model to improve the lives of Canadians or maximize their bountiful natural resources or 
even establish Canada as one of the wealthiest nations in the world on a per capita basis, which they could do. These things are secondary or even negatively correlated to the emissions model. In there lies the source of the conflict. Energy East was to be a Canadian success story. Western Canadian oil supporting Eastern Canadian economies. Basically, it was to be a swapping of nat gas compressors and oil pumps and some infrastructure built along the path and at the terminal in New Brunswick. The result being the refineries in Montreal, Quebec, St. John, and come by chance would not be held hostage by any foreign country's agenda. It was canceled in October of 2017, leaving the four refineries highly dependent upon Eastern Canadian oil production and foreign sources of oil. One action of the canceled pipeline was to accelerate oil production assets off the coast of Newfoundland. Hibernia production was increased, Hebron oil production started in 2017, and new areas like the Flemish Pass were studied with great anticipation. A major project to come from the study is the Beidou Nord project, located 500 kilometers east and a little north of St. John. This project will produce a complementary oil grade to the current Hibernia and Hebron production. Certainly not the economic boom that the ener that Energy East would provide, but very positive nonetheless. License for this development is currently in its second 40-day reevaluation of the environmental approval of three and a half years ago. If the Minister of Environment does deny the permit, he will be costing a region in desperate need of economic activity tens of billions of dollars, thousands of jobs, and arguably most important, leave three of Canada's biggest cities, Toronto, Montreal, and Quebec, subject to the whims of a foreign leader. Moving to the west side. Prime Minister Trudeau bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline from Kinder Morgan in what could have been a whale of a deal for Canada. This project was already producing profits. Revenue looked to triple. Massive boom for jobs, especially in rural Alberta and BC. And provide opportunity for Canada to show the world its state-of-the-art environmental stewardship by redefining how to build and run a state-of-the-art loading facility. However, this needed an experienced and focused management plan. It got neither. Instead, costs were allowed to balloon with minimal to zero indigenous involvement, but they will still get a state-of-the-art facility. Hopefully, that can be leveraged to show the world Canada's elite ESG standards. Keystone XL and Enbridge Line 5 are both an enigma as well. I'm running out of time here, but, but both projects find Canadians suing the United States for pipeline projects that are mutually beneficial. Lawsuit. Machine, what you go into as a pig and come out as a sausage. Ambrose Beers. Or, or maybe it's you go in as a whale and come out as oil. I don't really know. Jim? <laughs> uh, on the very first day that Captain Ahab addresses his crew in the book Moby Dick, 
he announces that his agenda is not prosperity, but revenge. He nails a doubloon to the mast. That's a 22 carat Spanish gold coin. A bounty for the first man to spot the object of my animosity. With that, even the level-headed Ishmael says, Ahab's quenchless feud now seems mine. And with that, everyone on the vessel Pequod was tied to Ahab's quest, whether they wanted to be or not. Yep, Keystone XL again. It was initially halted because the Army Corps of Engineers studies, yeah, two of them, didn't specifically address the dangers to the pallid sturgeon. Turns out, the biggest danger to the pallid sturgeon is nothing man-made. It's the very similar, and apparently good-looking, shovel-nose sturgeon. The pallid sturgeon has been breeding itself out of existence for years. With that resolved, then came the rebuke of the latest interpretations of the waters of the U.S. rule and an entire cascade of unintended consequences, including TC Energy and the province of Alberta suing the U.S. government. Now the lowering of the minimum levels of the SPR, down from 300 million to 254.2 million barrels, to talks with Venezuela, and the Iran nuclear treaty is going back and forth again. This looks to be the exact agreement as before, just with different timetables. Anyone who has ever managed people or had teenagers recognizes the snowball effect when one bad decision creates a cascade of other bad decisions. We're just not used to seeing that from the most powerful office in the world. As far as the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is concerned, President Biden has played all but one of his cards. He has lowered the minimum level of the SPR roughly a third of its capacity. Every barrel to get us to that minimum is already committed. He has pushed forward every other announced release in the next 10 years into the period of May through October of this year. The lone remaining card to be played is the announced release that came via the Infrastructure and Jobs Act of 2021. After the midterm elections here in the U.S. in November, the energy market could get volatile once again and could seek all-time highs. For a detailed listing of the announced releases with volumes and how it affects the SPR totals, look at my LinkedIn post from mid-March. And we've all heard and are all well aware of President Biden's energy agenda ad nauseum. I don't need to dwell. I do want to talk about a leader we haven't seen lead in 40 years. Dodge. Yeah, the car company. In an effort to maintain their brand identity, this past week, they announced the successful test of a prototype engine that burns hydrogen. Corey, put in the hood pins and strap on that five-point harness because this engine has 800 glorious horsepower. Can't wait to hear the growl on that Hellcat. Holy invidiousness, Batman! From a guy who can strut sitting down, Elon Musk has announced the Model O, or known as the Oatster. It has a hydrogen engine, 
And if I'm lying, I'm dying. It has what they are calling a Hindenburg mode. Macabre to be sure, but this car blows flames out the tailpipe. I hope it comes with 60 style tail fins. Mine will be blue. Yeah, I just bought a blue golf cart and hoping not to see any flames around it. Um, how's your buddy Omlo doing, Jim? For all three leaders, Canada, U.S., and Mexico, it can be said that they are a dog on a bone concerning their energy policies. Key difference being that President Obrador inherited most of his issues. A couple of years after the 2013 constitutional amendment that opened up Mexico's energy market to foreign investment, Mexico's system morphed into something similar to the American system. Now, that's a compliment like odor is to a skunk. A few of the original players were as slippery as a boiled onion and are currently being prosecuted for corruption. Be that as it may, here's the current lineup. Pemex ENP and Pemex Industrial Transformation manages domestic drilling, refining, and logistics, while Pemex International, PMI, manages the international side of the business. This behemoth of a company is run by Octavio Romera Oropisa, trained as an agrarian, but has been a lifetime politician and a personal friend of President Oberdor. This is a huge advantage for President Oberdor. Can you imagine what would happen if President Biden's bestie ran every speck of oil and gas in the U.S.? He'd be in hog heaven, and the rest of us would be in the other place, California. Next up is the Secretary of Energy, who also runs Center, Norma Rocchio Nale Garcia. I like her for her hard-charging pragmatism. She could charge hell with a bucket of ice. Trained as a chemical engineer, but serving as a politician for about 15 years, she has worked in the industry and has been a senator. The Commission Nacional de Hydrocarburos, CNH, is the regulating body for all EMP activity. This agency is run by the charismatic and very bright Juan Carlos Zapata Molina. Couple master's degree in economics and was working on his PhD when asked to serve the first of his five-year terms. He's on his third one now. The CRE, Comisión Reguladora de Energía is responsible for, among other things, permitting the midstream and logistics aspects of the oil business. After his extensive time serving as an engineer with Pemex and Senar, Leopoldo Vincente Melchi has recently taken over the agency whose recent actions were more like a poorly wrapped burrito. No doubt the engineer in Senor Melchi will fix that. Finally, the very low-key Agencia de Seguridad, Energía y Ambiente, ASEA. They are in charge of industrial safety, like OSHA, and environmental protection, like the EPA. Heading this agency is Margarita Buenrostro. This is important to understand the energy policy actions during President Obrador's term. In the 1990s, the then state of Tabasco political party leader, 
Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador appeared beaten and bloody on TV protesting Pemex. Now, must he not only support Pemex, but root out the corruption that unbalanced prosperity has brought? He did. However, his recent actions are more like shooting craps with the devil. Brave, dangerous, and highly risky, as evidenced by four actions. Buying the other half of the Deer Park Refinery in Houston is an absolutely brilliant move. For $600 million, PMI now controls a 340,000-barrel state-of-the-art refinery, which happens to be a perfect destination for Pemex export barrels and is a three-day boat ride to import gasoline and diesel into Mexico. Now comes the dancing in the hog trough part. President Oberdor and Secretary Nale have, in the face of constant criticism, continued to push the building of the $15 billion Omeka refinery in the town of Dos Bocos, where I agree this makes little sense and is currently unaffordable for Mexico. This refinery is about the future of refined product flow in the entire Gulf of Mexico. Mexico will very likely turn from an importer of American refined products into an exporter to America for refined products. There will be some bumps along the way. However, in Texas, we say, keep your saddle oiled and your gun greased. Supplying the Old Mecca refinery will be the upcoming Zama oil production field. This field sits on the border of two leased areas. One is owned by Pemex, the other by Talos Energy. A recent court decision gave operator rights to Pemex. This is a tactical error. Who would you guess has more available resources? The debt-laden Pemex or the cash-rich Talos Energy? Finally, a move that has ended in tears for every leader who has tried it and is very possibly the most concerning of these events. Instead of using the current revenue boost to repair Pemex balance sheet, Mexico has decided to subsidize fuel prices for both gasoline and diesel. To no one's surprise, Pemex's last earnings call posted a $5 billion loss in a time when every other producer, including Talos Energy, is posting large gains. Running with the devil can leave you so sick you may need two beds. So, Corey, I'm sure that for South of Mexico, our topic is pretty light on action. What have you got for us today? Okay, well, yeah, so we could easily set aside a few hours to discuss each South American country, their leaders, and what those leaders have done and are doing regarding each country's energy policy. But we are obviously not going to do that, and otherwise I'll set some parameters. I'm going to largely... Focus on the upstream. Uh, imports of products into Latin America, ethanol, etc., are important topics, but by and large, the greater global impact comes from crude and the policies and problems surrounding its production and export. That and crude is what I'm mostly focused on day to day, so I'll stick to my knitting. Even though there are some interesting and perhaps important points to be made about the non to minor producing countries in South America, I'll leave them be. 
That is, but for Peru. I'll talk about it now. Peru is a country that doesn't readily come to mind when talking about energy, but is representative in a lot of ways of the polar differences we are seeing between countries in Latin America. Pedro Castillo assumed office in July of 2021, and his presidency has not been without difficulty. Attempts at impeachment, I mean, he just survived a second, second attempt at impeachment. Uh, business leaders coming together to take action against his presidency, etc. I've spoken about him before, but again, I bring him up to highlight the polarization of South American leaders, where those with developable, developable resources seek to produce them while they still can, and others leaning very far left and forwarding climate goals. In the case of Peru, declaring a climate emergency, reaching net zero by 2050 by reducing CO2 emissions by 40%, and increasing renewable energy capacity 10% by 2030. But of course, neither conservative nor liberal administrations are immune to having their plans disrupted. Every Peruvian president for nearly 40 years has faced significant headwinds in governing, and policies that may not necessarily benefit those with power within the country will be difficult to achieve. Guess what? With high oil prices, Peru is now looking to boost its oil production and become more energy independent. Now, the country imports 80% of its oil needs, and it only produces 40,000 barrels per day of crude. The thought is to resurrect Block 192 and increase the country's production by over 60%. But Block 192 is riddled with historical environmental issues that have plagued the people living in the area for generations. Last year, the former Peruvian energy minister traveled to the U.S. to drum up investors. But the risk of investment in the country's oil production industry may be too great for most investors to handle. So you said those with developable resources seek to produce them. Now, I want to get back to that, but let's first talk about Venezuela. Ah, uh, yes, Venezuela. Okay, we know the story. The country at one time was one of the 20th 20 wealthiest countries in the world. But now, when one excludes French Guiana and the Falkland Islands, Venezuela is the, per capita, poorest company, com country excuse me, in South America. We all know this story. It started before Maduro, but he has been in power since 2013, and the previous U.S. administration's best efforts to have him removed from power failed. Since, Venezuelan policy has been to use its under-maintained assets to produce and export largely to China, as much crude oil as possible. Recently, that policy has meant strengthening ties with Iran, a ready supplier of condensate and gasoline. And now, even in the midst of leading a military action on Ukraine, Russia's Putin has held phone calls with Maduro to discuss a partnership between their respective countries. Yes, Russia has held calls with Venezuela about strengthening ties, something that has somewhat fallen between the cracks of the breathless coverage of the U.S. attempting to also strengthen ties with Venezuela in the midst of banning Russian oil imports. On our last podcast, I stated that I expected for Venezuelan crude production to hover around 700,000 barrels per day this year, possible maybe to reach just under 800,000 barrels per day. And I still see that as a possibility, but that has become a possibility because the current U.S. administration has turned a blind eye to the actions I just discussed, for example, like Iran importing more condensate into the country. The U.S.-Venezuela tie strengthening presents a problem as Russia has six 
joint ventures with PDVSA and Venezuela that collectively produce 120,000 barrels per day. So even as the U.S. administration catches flack for, and I'm quoting the collective analysis here, substituting one dictator for another, end quote, it's really not even as easy as doing that. Maduro's policy is to produce and export oil and to hold on to his presidency. If a nation that has claimed his presidency is illegitimate, comes calling, and wants to be friends again, you're probably going to take that option. Or, or has he? Maduro has outwardly agreed with uh, pronouncements of a detailed light agreement on national television. But a pillar of relaxing sanctions on Venezuela is that of free and fair elections in the country. And though the near term may not see a large flood of oil being imported to the U.S. from Venezuela, we may see production stabilize and begin to grow again. Chevron, and I'm not making any type of equity research statement or investment advice here, will potentially be key in boosting production and getting oil exported. The company smartly holds an OFAC waiver to keep a small footprint in the country. That waiver expires in June. However, it's still active now. Hmm. All right, so back to those with developable resources seek to produce them. Is that completely true? Well, no. So it looks like you caught me. Like several other South American countries, Colombia will hold presidential elections this year. And with the country standing as the third largest crude producer on the continent, that means we have somewhat of a heightened risk to supply. Now, Colombian oil production and exports are often in the news, namely because of continuous pipeline bombing, examples of guerrilla activity within the country. But further complicated by relationships with the Colombian indigenous peoples, and that production companies hold concessions that cover over 70% of ancestral territories. We've seen investment in Colombia kind of dwindle in recent years, and COVID clouded potential developments there. But as we emerge from the pandemic, then we see government policies arising once again to push investment back into energy. By and large, this push has been to fossil fuels, over a billion dollars, but differently than in the past. For example, blue hydrogen and over $700 million into the Barracamba refinery to improve environmental standards and reduce emissions. But even as crude exports still account for 3% of the country's GDP, Enhanced risk enters the scene with the presidential elections frontrunner, Gustavo Petro. If he is elected later this year, he may find resistance in several aspects, but Petro is decidedly not oil industry friendly. His campaign message has been anti-fracking, anti-crude exports, and focused on cutting exports while increasing revenue from tourism. Though he may not be able to push through all of these ideas, the message brings pause to outside investors that already view the country as risky. And replacing oil revenues with tourism res- revenues, although very interesting, I-, I think we'll find some difficulty taking off as guerrilla activity and violence, which has occurred since the 1960s, gives pause to some would-be travelers to the region. Mm, definitely so. So as you mentioned, Colombia is not the only South American country holding presidential elections this year, is it? That's true. And perhaps more critical to the global crude oil market, Brazilian presidential elections. Now, it's no secret that Bolsonaro has precipitously fallen in popularity. 
This due primarily to the same problems as other administrations around the world, handling of COVID and inflation. And since former President Lula has, was cleared of corruption charges and has returned strongly to the public eye, the probability of him winning the presidency this October has grown significantly, but despite not yet even officially being a candidate. So Brazil has increased its focus on clean energy over the last couple of years, namely through a dozen policies focused on hydro and wind. These policies account for nearly $1 billion of public money dedicated specifically for clean energy, while only $600 million has been directly set aside through policy to support the fossil fuel energy industry. Excuse me. However, that doesn't account for the over $2 billion public money for energy that could benefit multiple types. Now, that's legislation, some of which is on the Brazilian national level and some for certain jurisdictions. But when one exercises control over the national oil company, even when the government only owns 54%, well, that tends to be a great way to shape the most important policies. Bolsonaro first ousted Bronco as CEO over, purportedly, hiking prices. And after stating he would not interfere with prices, Bolsonaro then had Silva e Luna, Bronco's replacement, removed as CEO as well. He has now appointed Adriano Perez, a person more experienced in the energy markets as CEO. I think the vote for that goes like on the 14th of this month, something like that. Okay, so Perez has a plan regarding a price stabilization plan, but the market is the market and prices right now are high. Inflation is high. And this is not going to be fixed overnight. It seems that Bolsonaro's policy is that anyone willing to raise prices to more closely match international pricing will be removed. But as a matter, it is unlikely that Bolsonaro will keep the presidency when the October elections roll around. It is also likely that Lula will again be elected president. And we have an idea of what Lula thinks of the country's resources. He wants to build refineries and be energy self-sufficient. And he wants to export uh, refined products rather than crude. I know this idea seems far-fetched as the last refinery to be built in the country, Arnest, ran up so much in cost and was ultimately put on the sales block. The idea will shape his energy policies. In the interim, however, Lula plans to scrap the parity pricing. Now, he's light on details in his plan, but, quote, not keep the price in U.S. dollars, end quote. Uh, Jim. Final thoughts. Energy policy is a complex and highly nuanced political endeavor. Recent events have shown us that this will only increase in frequency and magnitude in the future. However, to truly move forward and transition into a new era, everyone must have an understanding and comfortableness, like a metaphor reflects. We will be truly ready for transition when all sides are comfortable enough to shoot craps over the phone. Thanks, Jims, and a special thank you to our listeners for tuning in. As always, please feel free to reach out to either Jim and I with any of your questions and with feedback. Until next time.